You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Roy Wood Jr. live at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. You'll know Roy as a Daily Show correspondent and also as a powerhouse of a comedian, a socio-political comedian who is able to take the most enormous and weighty topics. Um, we will hear from him about uh, one of the pieces he did on the Daily Show about gang violence in Chicago and the people who are putting themselves in the way of that violence and trying to convince people standing in front of them carrying weapons not to go seeking revenge. Um, it's uh, He's an astonishing man. He's a very, very fine comedian and uh, an incredibly detailed and methodological comic. We're going to get a lot of that detail and more besides at the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, in which we'll go into a bit more detail on how he analyses the waveforms of recordings of gigs. So loads to enjoy there. Let's get stuck into it. This is Roy Wood Jr. How are you? Are there cameras? Because I don't want to give Coca-Cola free advertising. <laughs> well, there, there are no cameras, but on the podcast, you have just said that. So. Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> I love Pepsi. <laughs> of all my drinks, Pepsi is my favorite. <laughs> Not Coca-Cola. That is an imp- How are you, sir? I'm really good. I'm really thank good. You, and- thank you, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you for coming on. I understand you are being flogged to death with your schedule here at South by Southwest. Yeah, it's always hectic here. It's a good time, but because the Daily Show has such a large presence at the festival, Comedy Central kind of makes sure that you bounce around to a lot of different events. And we did a comedy show last night, myself and all the correspondents. And then this morning we did a panel and there was a bunch of press stuff. And just being out and about in the streets of Austin, Texas, speaking to people, saying hello in these streets. I'm not a celeb in that sense. I'm riding a scooter, almost hitting strangers, just like everybody else. (laughs) So I enjoy this. I mean, I'm just I mean, I'm a southerner at heart. You know, I'm from Alabama. So to be down here in Texas, it's just there's just a sense of fun about this. So when you do have an hour of space to do nothing rather than go back to the room. I'm just bouncing around to food trucks and literally running into people I haven't seen in 10 years on the street. So it's, it's fun. And the show last night, have you done that before? Is that, I mean, that was a fantastic show to watch, all of the Daily Show correspondents collectively doing stand-up. Um, we've never done that at Southwest. We've done it sparingly, and that's kind of a new thing since Trevor took over. There's more stand-ups working. Pretty much every of the six correspondents, Desi Lydic is the only one that's not a stand-up by nature. And she's more comedic actress and dramatic acting and everything. But to have this is definitely the first time in the history of The Daily Show that it's been that many stand-ups working at the same time on the show. So we already had it came together because we already had to come in Friday night yeah. to prepare for the Saturday morning panel. 
and the thought is always as a comic when you're in a city and there's a festival like this going on there's already going to be shows happening so we were looking for open mics to get to and then we we're just like fuck it let's just do a show and, and was like, there okay was there because I, I know there's I feel there's a difference between your stand-up persona and your daily show persona like, I've heard all three of your albums that are available on Spotify, not to advertise that platform. Oh, yes, we can plug that. Yes, but, uh, yes, we can, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, I've heard all three of those albums. They're excellent albums. and you're, you're a phenomenally accomplished stand-up. And I'm interested in the way in which your, your persona on stage has changed as a result of you, since you started working on The Daily Show in 2015. Uh, perspective. The finding the alternative perspective is probably the biggest influence. Um, my last two albums came out after I started on The Daily Show, and I would say that creatively they're influenced more by what the creative process is in the building. Where, like, for example, so we are, we are a new satire show, but there are also between, depending on how you count them, there's anywhere between 10 to 12 other shows that will probably touch on a topic that we're going to touch on on that particular day. Let's just say it's Paul Manafort or somebody testifying against Trump. Okay, well, you know Seth Meyers is going to do something. You know Sam B is going to do something. Colbert is going to touch it. John Oliver is going to touch it. Bill Maher is going to have something to say. More than likely, Wyatt Cenac and what they do over at Problem Areas. Up until earlier this year, Robin Thede on BET with The Rundown. So you you know everybody's going to dive in on this subject. So you have to start looking at the different prisms through which to address the topic. And you know everybody's going to say apples and oranges. And then it's our job to find broccoli, celery, pineapples okay okay on the same issue because the apple and oranges jokes the apple and oranges perspectives those are easy everybody's gonna have those so now it's about who can dig to find the more specific unique angles and looks on all of it and i think that's where we really have to work so as a result when you look at my stand-up um if you look at a bit where i talk about you know the national anthem that's a probably a good example where on my last special I talk about the national anthem and how you know the the debate as it's written or as it's had so far in society and on social media is do you kneel for the anthem or do you stand for the anthem do you kneel do you stand do you kneel do you stand how about we just change the song maybe that's one way and so the joke becomes an exploration about what are some other songs that black people would stand for (laughs) because they're bangers and you just can't resist dancing and that's how I settled on Bruno Mars for the joke because nobody, black or white everybody has a favorite Bruno Mars song at least one, you have one even if you didn't buy the albums you nod your head and so that became the broccoli or the, the alternate angle on that issue. And then it becomes an exploration of the Star Spangled Banner itself, which from what I could tell on most of the conversations that have been had up until that point, it was just stand or don't stand or take a knee. But let's also look at the anthem and the fact that the anthem is based off of a British song. It's basically a remix. Like There's so many things 
flawed. It, it, it talks about slavery in one of the verses. Like, there's so many other things going on in this song. So that's not a journey that I would have taken creatively had I never worked at The Daily Show because my writing and perspective were never challenged like that. Because, you know, for 15, 16 years before I started there, my writing, I thought, was okay. But now I can look back at so many jokes that I wrote and I can just go... I didn't I didn't dig deep enough on that topic. I didn't talk enough about that from, you know, alternate angles. Jim Gaffigan is someone that I really enjoy watching because Gaffigan and just I'm a I love food, so everything's a food analogy. Uh he gets all the meat off the bone on an issue. Once Gaffigan gets a hold of a topic, he can go in. He did on one of his albums, if I'm not mistaken, six and a half minutes about bacon. (laughs) Just bacon. It's origin, how bacon is paired with other meats, how there's bacon bit. Like, just, I don't want to give the bit away, but like, he basically eviscerated this topic to the point where if you're a comedian and you want to talk about bacon, you can't. Because Gaffigan's, he's done it from every possible, there's no meat left on that bone for you to nibble on to build a joke on. So I try to go down that path now with everything else, you know. And granted, I get the difference between me and Gaffigan is that I'm trying to find stuff that's a little more volatile, stuff that's a, that has a little more of a societal... You know, something that'll make the hair stand up on your back of your head, in the back of your neck a little bit. You know, let's talk about police reform. Let's talk. Let's figure out what everybody goes apples and oranges. Fuck the police. Blue lives matter. Okay, that's fine. But let's look at one more prism of this. What is another way? And that's where the bit came from about paying good cops with the settlement money that you would have been paying to the family of dead black people. Take that money and just pay good cops to snitch on bad cops. And <laughs> and so that became an exploration into the salary of police officers. Most police officers make on average about the same as a high school teacher. So when you have a job where you're not really paid well, you're not really incentivized to do the right thing outside of morals. And once you add money to the equation the propensity to snitch on your coworkers goes up. And and you start looking at other occupations where people are paid well and there is no cone of silence. Like if a doctor screws up in the operating room, everybody snitches on that doctor immediately. There's no doctors trying to, I'm not trying to do the bit, but it, like it's, so I'm trying to find a way to take a joke or to take an ideology to an edge and then go, okay, you may not agree with this in principle, but let's break it down. And hopefully on the backside of that, there's a conversation or there's a point that may have never been considered, especially by black people. When you get into a room full of black people and you go, let's pay the police more, that's not a great first line. Sure. (laughs) But once you build the case and really start laying out all of the evidence, by the end of the joke, 
you're on board with me. And that's kind of, I kind of enjoy that to some degree. It's fun. It's interesting, that analogy of building the case, because you have got such a clear line of argument. Something you're incredible at doing in your stand-up is to take uh, a central, like um, uh, a mundane or domestic topic, something about your own life, expand it to find within it the social justice angle, the civil rights angle, the, the, the racial paradigm, and then, and then bring it back down to something kind of... Not necessarily silly, but something easier to laugh at, to find exactly the right premise that will crack open the topic. Yeah, that's and that's something like if you go back and listen to my first album before The Daily Show, there's topics in there and you can see kind of the thing. And granted, a lot of that from a PC angle and the way our culture has evolved, some of those jokes would have even been built differently. I would have still landed in the same place, but it still would have been a different construction of the premise and I think that for what I do comedically that's where I'm happiest I I wish and I've I've told the comedians that do this that I I wish that I could care a little less about the world and what's going on so that I could do more fun jokes and everything like I have a two and a half year old child I'm sure there's jokes in that but I they don't speak to any issue. They don't speak to anything that I think people are going through or that the world is going through. And I just know that those jokes won't necessarily fulfill me, at least not yet. I mean, maybe you transition and then you really go and explore that. But for the most part, I've always talked about the things that connect us because when I started stand-up, I started in Alabama and Florida. And so... The concept of comedy as it's seen, as it's portrayed on TV, comedy is portrayed as a big city career where you struggle. The the rural experience has never been explored on television. And it's you work during the day and then you go to five open mics at night and then one day you get your big shot. Whereas in the South, open mic is once a month per city in 1998. So if you want it, to perform every week, you had to go to a different city. So you're driving and bouncing around, and if you're trying to get on stage in different places, the South is so, the demographics are so spread out and different that every week you're performing for somebody different. One week it's old white people, then it's a hood room, then it's a college gig, then it's something more mainstream and middle class. So my upbringing comedically forced me into finding things that were common denominators between all of those demographics. Uh, Because also, I started when I was 19, so I was too young to talk about myself in a spirit that most audiences would care about. Most audiences, if you're an adult with three kids, you don't want to hear a 19-year-old talking about his roommate eating his Oreo cookies at night. (laughs) So... What are the jokes that the 80-year-old will laugh at, that the dope boy will laugh at, and the soccer mom will laugh at, and these middle-class black people will laugh at? And then generally speaking, it's not across the board, but generally speaking, we're all connected by either politics, relationships, sports, food. If you If you have anything in those four buckets you probably have a joke that can work in most places. And so that's kind of how I started building my act. It's just I would have 
of those four buckets, I would have a joke out of each bucket. And eventually you learn which bucket to go to based on the demographic. But you had these jokes that were constantly about the world around us and what connects us. And that became more of my creative, I don't know, like, like th- that was just my creative tendency. That's just what started. And it was more out of necessity than purposeful. I can't say it was out of intention as much as it was I could work all day on some joke about the electric slide that's going to kill in a black room, but the moment I go do this casino in Biloxi, I'm going to get stared at for seven minutes. Yeah, so you, the implication is it's to the detriment of the quality of your material. It's the detriment of the, the specificity. Yes, because it, also keep in mind, when you're working down south, half of this material is what you really want to do and who you really are, and the other half is what's getting a laugh and what's going to get you rebooked. You still got to get rebooked. So you can get up there and wax poetic about what your real opinions are about the world, but if 50 people in the bar ain't trying to hear that shit, you're not going to get rebooked. So that's less stage time for you, and that's less reps in a region where reps are already scarce in the first place. So you take an electric slide joke that used to only be for black people. Now you go, okay, let's add in country line dancing. Let's add in square dancing. Let's make this an entire joke about dancing and formations. And now you have something that is connective. It's not divisive. It's everybody, every culture dances in a line. And then you just go down the list of each culture. Everyone has some stupid turn left, turn right. And so now it's a joke that I can do in all rooms. Because now the only thing that would change is based on the demographic is which dance I would start with in the joke. You reorder the joke. So I start with the one that you're most familiar with so that you're on board and you think I'm one of you. And and this guy gets me. Okay, really? Electric slide? Tell me more. I've never heard of this. (laughs) Whereas if you start with electric slide, you'll go, what the fuck are you talking about? But if I start with country line dancing and I'm performing in a country western bar, then that's an easy segue into we do the same thing. It's no different, blah, 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 blah. And to some degree, you almost have an opportunity to, I don't want to say educate, it's arrogant, but there there are parts in, of my act where hopefully I've painted a picture of what the black experience is for someone who may not have known otherwise. You know, like that's, it's cool when it happens. It's not the goal with everything I write, but, you know, in a lot of places, I probably am the first black person they've seen in a long time. I'm sure they got a black coworker or two or something like that. But to be able to get on stage and quantify very divisive issues in a way from a perspective that they may not hear a lot about, especially if you're someone that's not – if you're not as liberal or you don't have as many liberal leanings – when are you having these conversations? Who are you talking to? You're not watching any of the shows that say stuff that you don't agree with. Most people don't ever do that. So I feel like if I'm in a strange place and I have an opportunity, I would much rather talk about issues that divide us than my son not wanting to be potty trained. Yeah, okay. Okay, it's interesting. It it reminds me of, um, there's a a bit of your material, I forget which album, it might be Father Figure, about the the white guy working at the Black History Museum. (laughs) And that's a really good example of, if you could, I mean, 
I'm not asking you to do the bit, but mm. it's a really good example of exactly what you're talking about, where you've made it open to every possible audience yeah, and still and, retain a point. And that was something that I really saw. And so what that bit represented, and the, and the basic premise of the bit is that I went to a black history museum in Atlanta and I had a white tour guide and I wasn't sure how to feel about that. <laughs> but on the journey, you see this person had a legitimate care and concern and an immense depth of knowledge of black culture, which to me was helping to present to white America to some degree. There are people out there who care and there are people that can handle this stuff the right way. The turn being, I would still rather have a black tour guide because I feel like they've lived some of that stuff and they can just speak from a totally different perspective. And, you know, and, and so to me, that joke was about white allies. That's the joke in a nutshell. But then you sprinkle in, yeah, make sure you get a black tour guide in the morning while he's still in a good mood because he's staring at slavery all day. He's probably mad. <laughs> you don't want a tour at 450 from a black tour guide. <laughs> He's probably <laughs> angry. Um, from that same album to that point, you know, um, I talked about how, you know, I'm not really big on conservation. You know, I don't really, like when I'm in a store, I always get a bag. And I got into an argument with a cashier about whether or not I needed a bag for a minuscule item. And, and you know, and she kind of, you know, was chastising me from a place of environmentalism and how dare you, you're being wasteful and blah, 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 blah. And what she didn't understand is that as a black man, I still have a paranoia of leaving a store with something in my hand. I have to have a bag. The bag is literally a precautionary measure. It has nothing to do with the earth. This bag is for my safety. Like that's, and that was the joke. And so it's one of those bits where if you're white and you don't have a black friend that's never talked to you about being followed around a store, the paranoia of being accused of stealing something, you, it would never dawn on you yeah. that this bag and the receipt are basically... Well, that, there's an incredible moment in that, in that album when you say, because the tag on that routine is, and the receipt, and you can hear on the album people, people. In, in the room say, joining in because they're getting they it at exactly the, the right moment. They finish the sentence. Yeah, and, that's, and it's one of those jokes where... If I'm if I'm clicking on all cylinders, God willing, I'm showing non-black people a prism of the black experience they would have never considered or thought about, and I'm confirming to black people that they're not alone in the way they see the world. And that, to me, was one of the more it's one of the bits that I'm more proud of in the sense that. It really nailed that because black people already know that. Well, every black person I know got 50 bags under the sink at their house. <laughs> yeah. We don't even throw the bags away at the house. We keep them in case. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's, that's the journey with the material. It's just being able to have an opportunity to offer up some understanding. And that's why I'm so thankful for what Trevor's allowed us to do on The Daily Show because, you know, we get to go out and cover a lot of stuff that on the surface ain't that funny. It's not funny. And you find the jokes, but you're still able to juggle a more serious issue. And I don't think I would have been able to, to do this job without knowing that I would be able to scratch that itch. 
And so I get to do enough stories like that. You know, every now and then you want to do a nice, goofy, fun story, you know, to balance out your stress. Sure. So this is Roy. Great fun talking to him. As you can probably hear, he's absolutely shattered. He'd been uh, been slogging hard all day. Uh, him and the other Daily Show correspondents and Trevor Noah had appeared on a, a huge uh, keynote address at South By, uh, and they'd also performed in a fantastic showcase the previous night. Um, it was Roy Wood Jr., Ronnie Cheng, of course, friend of the show, Michael Costa, Dulcie Sloan and Jabuki Young-White, all of whom were just sensational stand-ups and... Uh, were really part of an adrenaline shot that South by gave me of just seeing some phenomenal comics, uh, many of whom I'd never done stand up before. I also wanted to to tell you about Sam Jay, who just destroyed God. I don't know anything about her. I saw her do a fifteen or twenty minute set as part of a lineup show at Esther's Follies, and. Um, Honestly, she redefined what killing a room, <laughs> what killing a room meant to me. It was so just. Like all of it, outrageous, scabrous, hilarious, and all of it rigorously thought out and meaningful and interesting. But you didn't have time to be interested because you're too busy laughing. I, I just absolutely blew me away. As did all of these. I'd never seen Jabuki before. I'd never seen Dulcie Sloan, who's uh, who has more of an opening gesture than an opening line, um, which I won't describe for fear of spoiling it if you see her. Michael Costa, brilliant. Ronnie Cheng is always amazing. We you know a, a huge. We're fans of him, and um, uh, and so and so Roy as well was was just superb, and I'm I'm very much enjoying talking to him, and really grateful to Roy for making such an effort despite being absolutely run ragged by the demands of uh, his festival schedule. So more from Roy in just a second. Just to mention briefly the tour, the second leg of my tour is on sale now and is selling very satisfyingly. Um, By the time you hear this, there will be just a few days left until I'm back at the Hawth Theatre in Crawley. So if you're in that part of the world um, between London and Brighton, do get... I don't know why I'm mentioning that. If you you live near Crawley, you'll have heard of it. Um, But get along to that one. That's uh, really fun nearly sold out but it would be great to shift those final tickets and be unbearably smug on the way home um, all of the tour dates and more at comedianscomedian.com slash tour uh, thank you to everyone that came along to the Birmingham uh, podcast festival uh, I did a live comcom with Sindhu V and she was absolutely brilliant funny and charming and also and I'll mention this on her episode which will go out as soon as I have the files hopefully next week um, she also referred to herself as a graduate of this podcast and uh, that gladdened my heart as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, so exciting now to be in a position where this show has been going on for so long. It has been a big part of the process of some comics who are breaking through and achieving great things. It's uh, I, it's really exciting to hear that that's happening. And I, I'm enormously proud of anyone who has considered this podcast part of their creative development and then gone on to great things. And, you know, similarly, I'm proud of everyone who considers this podcast part of their creative development and has gone on to whatever the hell they want. You don't need to be a star in order to earn my pride and gratitude that you've uh, considered this show part of your process. So that's everything I'm going to say for now. I'll chat to you about South by in the postamble. For now, let's get back to Roy Wood Jr. With the correspondence pieces, is there one that springs to mind... um, that was like the toughest call to make a, an unfunny subject funny, like the, the longest reach to try and find Chicago. some humor. Chicago violence. Oh, that's the, the people that, that try to 
The uh, interrupt game. Interrupt game. Yeah, games, like yeah. The, that's the, the, I don't even think there's anything second. We did, I did the 25th anniversary of the Million Man March. That was the second. So the first two pieces I did when I got hired in 2015, the first piece was a team up with Jordan Klepper, and we went to Madison, Wisconsin, and we did a two-day ride along with the Madison Police Department looking at their uh, police bias training. And at the time, Madison was caught up in their own questionable shoot of an officer killing a young black man. So to be able to have that type of access to address that issue was pretty serious. Um, We did the Million Man March, which wasn't necessarily a dangerous topic, but it was one of those ones where you know this is a black, blackity, black, black, black function. And you bring cameras around black people. We already don't really trust cameras. And then you're coming around trying to do sarcasm, and sarcasm doesn't always read. So it that was a tough one to thread the needle on, but it ended up being a story that I thought was really good. And we put we put cameras in a place where I think a lot of people, because I'm also thinking about the Daily Show viewer, and a lot of them are not black. It's blacker now since Trevor took over, but we're talking first week of the Daily Show. The Daily Show has a predominantly white viewership. That's just statistical truth. So... I have an opportunity to take a camera to a place where you normally wouldn't see this type of stuff. And you know most of the major news outlets weren't reporting on it, and they didn't. And we went to Trevor, made the pitch, and he said, yeah, go out there and do it. And for everything that you think blackness is or anything, whatever anyone thinks it is, I have four and a half minutes with a camera to walk around the National Mall and point the camera at black people that speak to the opposite of those stereotypes. And that's a beautiful thing. That was, that was a responsibility I took very seriously. Uh, but Chicago was hands down the toughest piece, but the most necessary. Because, like, over the last two years, every time there's police drama and every time the police shoot some, someone and black people, we get upset, we march, and activists, you know, mobilize. The conversation a lot of people love to fucking throw out is what about black on black crime? Y'all ain't doing nothing about black on black crime. I don't see y'all. You know how many people get shot in Chicago? Y'all don't march in Chicago. So this false narrative that black people only try to solve one issue is fucking ludicrous. It's ludicrous. So you find out about a group of black people who have for years, long, years and your decades even, have just been walking the streets of Chicago. They get former gang bangers and former gang members to walk the streets on the south side and the west side of Chicago. The group is called Ceasefire Stop Violence. And these ceasefire members, literally, they know, like the streets know who shot who. The police are trying to figure it out, but the streets know before the shells even hit the ground. So... Ceasefire, because they're OGs in the game, they get respect from the youngins on the block, and the youngins will tell them, yo, my boy got shot by this crew over on that corner. Ceasefire will go over to that crew and will talk to them and go, look, one of y'all need to go turn yourself in. Y'all need to calm this down. Y'all need to stop this. And then Ceasefire will go back to the person who just lost their friend and will convince that person to not retaliate against the group across town or in many cases in Chicago, around the corner. Because a lot of these crews go block to block. It's not big gang territory like it used to be in the 90s. So this is a group 
who goes block to block every day convincing people not to murder each other. Where are the fucking jokes? Yeah. And you pitched this. You, yeah. you, you pitched this idea. Yeah. When you pitched it, did you have any idea of where the fucking jokes were? I knew their issue was funding. And that's the biggest issue with any community outreach programs is funding. So the issue is the issue. But you make all the jokes about the funding. You make okay. all the jokes about why the city won't give them more money, but they'll give money to XYZ programs when ceasefire, who also keeps statistics, it's shown when there is a presence of ceasefire orange jackets in a neighborhood that shootings go down by them just literally physically standing on a corner. So they have all of this proof. So we made the jokes all in the realm of funding, and we did a walk and talk on the streets with ceasefire and just watch them in action, and it was very tenuous. There were certain blocks we couldn't take the cameras up until we got the green light from ceasefire. Ceasefire would go up the block, and they, it wasn't just negotiating with the one person that you were going to interview. You have to negotiate with these two crews on the other porch who you're not even talking to. Because if you point that camera at them, you don't know how they're going to react. You don't know which way that's going to go. But because ceasefire was so respected in that hood, they would go up the block for 30 minutes and explain to everybody what we were doing, what the cameras are here for, the cameras are here to help raise funding, blah, 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 blah. And we interviewed people. We interviewed people on the block who deal with the violence every day. And ultimately, what we did was frame ceasefire because what they really do is essentially community policing. It's the shit that the police is supposed to be doing. Walking the bleat and speaking to the constituents and figuring out where the hot spots are. So we made, we basically took what Ceasefire, the joke ultimately in the piece is that we took what Ceasefire did and we turned it into an NBC TV show and we cut an action-packed, dramatic trailer. <laughs> but all they do is shake hands and have conversations. But... <laughs> <laughs> but we made it look like shootouts. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Duck and you get down. You take cover. You yell at people around the corner. Hey, I'm talking to you. And then you duck. And that honored what they did. It showed what they did. And you know, after the piece ran, and ended up, they ended up getting a donation of about ten thousand dollars from various groups. They got five or six computers. They they have laptops at their offices that were still running Windows ninety eight. And these are the laptops that they're using to conduct mock interviews and teaching, you know, electronic literacy programs to a lot of people in the neighborhood. If you want to learn about like it's so much deeper than just walking the streets, what they do. And I say all of that to say it's the most meaningful piece because of not only that, but one of the people that we interviewed on the block was murdered three days after the piece aired. So it's it's the one that sits with me as the most real and and it's it's also one that I'm that I'm very that I was very tiptoe about doing because because the city of Chicago if you talk to the people that are that are of Chicago they don't really like the cameras there because the narrative is usually never favorable okay. to what's really happening there and so it was one of those pieces that I really wanted to make sure we handle properly because I'm not from Chicago and when you're going into that, when you're pitching a piece like that, have you got an idea in advance of how you're going to make it funny? Or is it just that, almost like that yoke around your neck of like, I've, this is a thing and I've got to talk about it, so we've got to pitch it? It depends. Like, there's, there's certain pieces where you go, 
here's a problem. We'll figure out how to make it funny. I don't like, but you've got to have an idea when you go into the pitch at, at our core, we are still a comedy program, period. We can't just do human interest piece and go, this is a person and blah, 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 blah. We have to still have jokes. And I feel like that's more fun because that's more challenging. So I can go to my field producer. Or I can go to my field, my, my field director and I can go, Hey, look, it's people getting shot in Chicago. There's a group that keeps people from getting shot. The group don't get no money. We're going to frame the group like an action series, and then they'll get the money. And we just shoot an action. And so the whole joke becomes the landing point of the piece. And that gets greenlit. And then we did a piece on the Compton Cowboys um, a couple of months ago. And the Compton Cowboys are a ranch in the middle of Compton that's been operating since the early 90s that uses horse therapy as a way to treat PTSD with kids in the hood. So if you're around violence, you've got PTSD to some degree. If you've been in a gang, you have PTSD to some degree. And they use the horses and forging a relationship between between people in the hood and horses as a way for them to escape everything that's going on around them. Now, that's the serious issue. But the joke is, I can't ride a horse. And I don't know what the hell I'm doing on a horse. So the piece becomes the funny the funny thread through the piece becomes my journey to try and become a Compton cowboy. Okay. And intersplice within that journey in the piece, we have the real moments where you meet the young lady who lost her brother in the shootout. You meet the brother who's trying to use this as a way to get out the hood because now he's a professional bareback rider and one of the top in the country. So you have those moments intersplice between me trying to get a horse to turn left and all it does is go right. <laughs> okay, okay. And so you, when you have more serious pieces, because The Daily Show, it's not always you find the villain and I trick you and, yeah, white supremacist, yeah, blah, 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 I gotcha, it was funny. That works, but when you're dealing with more serious stuff, the jokes have to be adjacent to the issue. So you have the issue and just you just oscillate a little bit. And if you watch a lot of pieces, a lot of our field pieces that focus on really serious issues, it's just balancing the sweet with the sour. Okay. All the correspondence pieces that you do, are they all individually pitched to Noah by the individual correspondent? We have our own pitch meeting as a field group. And then from that, like basically you may pitch three stories of which one or two will make the pitch packet. And then the pitch packet is what goes to Trevor. And then that's when we all sit down. And as Trevor's going through the pitch packet, you explain to him each piece and what's going on and where the jokes are. Because you can have a piece that's f- that speaks to a real issue, but if you don't have the jokes, it can't go to Trevor. I, I made a pitch for a segment that's not going to make the next pitch packet because I still need to find how to... like. So with breast cancer research, breast cancer research and mammograms and going through the journey of breast cancer detection, there hasn't been really many advances in that in the past 30 years beyond, you know, the traditional mammogram. And so there's a group that's working to create new ways of early detection amongst women. So there are basically there's. There's an old school way of thinking of how to detect breast cancer conflicting 
with the new school way of thinking of how to detect breast cancer. And the issue is that nobody will fund the new way to even know if there's a better way. Nobody will even fucking give the money to even see if what we've been doing the last 30 years is the right thing to do. But that's just a conflict. There's no jokes. And then we also have to, the other thing that's also interesting is that everything that you pitch isn't necessarily for you. It may not even be my place to be the to be the correspondent that carries the breast cancer research story. That might be a Dulce Sloan story. That might be a Desi Lydic story. So even when you're pitching, you're not necessarily pitching for yourself as much as you are just pitching for something that you think the show should be talking about or something that speaks to a bigger issue. So when you're... In, something you're very good at doing in your stand-up is kind of assuming a position... I'm thinking of a specific bit where you are talking about... Uh, about language and about the N-word and about how uh, gay people manage to get five... Was it five words a year taken yeah. out of the vocabulary? <laughs> so, like, to, I mean, I, I, again, I don't want to tread on the bit, but I think something that you say, there's a, there's a particular line that you kind of say that really shows your authorial position. And I think it's something like, um, I don't like it any more than you do, I'm just trying to have ideas. Do you know Correct. What I mean? it's, it's something Correct. along those lines. And that really kind of frames you as really deftly, I think, as able to look at one hand all these terrible things, another hand this is a potential solution, which isn't necessarily a solution. It's kind of a comic premise of a solution. Yeah, but But it's, let's just explore. Do you have any better ideas is always the question I pose to the audience. And the, the basic premise of the bit is that the LGBTQIA community is very efficient in eliminating slurs. Anytime there is a new slur that comes out, if you say it, your job is on the line, it's, it, shit is bad for you immediately, which I said out of respect for their efforts in advocating for being respected in society. Meanwhile, black people have been working on the N-word since... <laughs> since 1904... And so the bit is really, it's out of a place of jealousy that, that they just came along in the last 20 years and y'all got all these words we can't call you, but y'all still hitting us with the one word to which, so the original premise of the bit, and i show you how a bit can go south yeah, real go fast. On, yes, I'd love to know, go on. So the bit as it was written was, it's, it's that and then it's, well, the only way to get rid of the N-word is to start calling gay people the N-word. <laughs> because they're so adept at getting rid of all of these phrases, let's add one more phrase. So that was, that was the joke. What used to be the joke was, matter of fact, we should put all the phrases on gay people. Gay people can fix all of the world's problems. And in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, this is a good bit about... But what happens is that the joke goes too far because now I'm going, call gay people everything. And then I just run down like a 20-slur list (laughs) of things here. You feel it? Yeah, 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 right, yeah. Uh, Thankfully, I developed this bit. This was like 2014, 15 when I was beta testing. This is before people were secret recording shows and everything. (laughs) But I had, thankfully, the room and space to make the mistakes and understand, okay, there's no need to go that far into the weeds sure. on the joke. This is the joke. This is just indecent but decent enough. So that's where the bit stopped, and that's what you heard on the album. Yeah. The early 
the 1.0 version of that joke. <laughs> but that, that ability that you have to find the fault lines of, a, of an issue and to just find exactly the way to make it crack in such a way that the room goes nuts, just like they did then. As you're, you're explaining the situation, we're all following it, and even though you're not in performance mode, that premise is so effective that you can make this room of people listening to a conversation laugh, like not outside of a gig context. Where, where does that skill come from? How have you honed that skill to be able to find exactly the right way to make the subject crack? I don't, I don't feel like I always have it. I, mean, I feel like you have to find that place, and the only way you find that place is by going too far sometimes. And so that's one of those bits where... I did it twice where I went too far and I went back and listened to the audio and you just have to respect the crowd response and the biggest laugh is here. Therefore, that is the end That's of the joke. That's it stops, yeah. Okay. That's the end. Of, it doesn't matter what you care. It doesn't matter how much. It's funny to me, so I'm going to do it anyway and berate you. I'm not, I'm not here to go to battle with the audience. That's not what I want to do. I want people to feel good and think critically about stuff and at the core, hopefully, that bit is an acknowledgement of just how far the LGBTQIA community has come and being able to have that level of respect and just longing for that for my people as well. Like that's hopefully what I leave, hopefully that's what people leave with and that's not always the goal, but you know, I just think trial and error has always been the best place for that. I did morning radio for 12 years, so I would be lying if I said that didn't have some influence. And I did morning radio, I started in 2001, which was two years before the Janet Jackson Super Bowl incident. And so when that happened, when the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake, whatever thing happened, the FCC guidelines for decency changed and it got more stringent. So a lot of things that we were getting away with saying on the air, we were getting written up for and suspended for after that. So that was one of the first renditions of, all right, you can't say that but I can come close. And sometimes it's about inception half the time anyway. If you do it right as a comedian, I believe that I can suggest something and never say it, and you'll put it in your head. Whatever the worst version of that is, you'll put it in your head, and it'll be the version that makes you laugh, not the version that makes you offended. And I've never said anything. All I did was suggest. And if you come up to that line and you have the audience thinking something that's a little indecent, every person's going to have their own different idea of where the line is. And I think that's an easier way you know, to operate rather than just... But, you know, it's, it's hard. You still have trial and error. You still have to do jokes. I mean, there's, there's bits that you just have to try, and you just have to be okay with somebody not liking you that night. There's someone who I'm sure heard that whole gay people inward joke the one night that I went too far and they probably haven't seen me perform the joke since and you just have to deal with it What elements of your own work do you think that a student of your work watching you in the same way that you might have watched Martin Lawrence what things do you reckon they would pick up on as uh, like habits of yours like performative habits or tropes of yours um, I enjoy um, and I've only done it on the last two specials, but I just enjoy starting with the joke. I enjoy, you know, in, in television, it's called the cold open, where it's the scene in the TV show before the opening credits. 
that sets the tone for what the entire episode would be about. And it's three, four minutes. and it was, Like in CSI Miami, whenever they the dead body and they look at the body and then he puts the shades on and yeah! <laughs> but you know the guitar is coming. Yeah! So I like starting my shows like that. Like my last two, my last two specials, I just walked out on stage cold and just started a bit. That's that you, the, the beginning of Father Figure where you walk out. You, you almost start mid sentence. Yeah, mid thought. But if we get mid thought, but if we get rid of the Confederate flag, how will I know? <laughs> yeah, and so off that first sentence, it's what? Okay. Yeah. You have my attention now. Yeah. And that's the goal. It's that, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Y'all looking good. Thank y'all, man. All right. Let's get into it. No, fuck that. Yeah, I had a... Let's start the joke. Do the joke. The joke is funny. You end the joke. How y'all doing tonight? Yeah! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the eyeglass moment. But I I enjoy that. It's also a challenge, so I really like doing that. I had a British comic called Jeff Innocent uh, on the show recently in the UK on, on this podcast who said that he never says hello because that's, he says he's wasting an opportunity because if you can walk on and from cold launch into a, th- launch into a bit, that gives them... It, like, to say hello just lets all the air out of the... That, that kind of, you know, if you're playing with tension, it just releases all the tension George at the beginning. George Carlin is, is, and I'll be honest, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's one I stole from George Carlin's playbook. George Carlin was the king of walking on stage cold turkey and just mitts and it's just, you ever noticed, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he could do it with a sentence. Like, I'm still doing full two, three-minute bits before I get into the welcome. Carlin literally could get an applause break in two sentences or less walking out on an HBO special. I've never seen anything like it. How much of a student of comedy are you? Do, you? do you have a broad range of things that you like to watch? And do you still watch as much comedy as you used to when you started? I try. I try, but, you know, a child and daily show takes up a lot of stuff. Um, I listen to a lot more. When I started, I watched a lot of comedy. Um, but comedy was also on TV more. You know, granted, Netflix, it's Netflix and everybody has a special every week there. But, you know, there was a show, BET's Comic View. And so BET's Comic View came on five nights a week. Friday night was the best of. But Monday through Thursday, Comic View came on at 9 o'clock and it came on at 9 p.m. and at midnight. And I watched it every night. And there were six comedians an episode. And... I started in 2001. I, when I graduated, I started in 98. And when I graduated school in 2001, I moved back home to Birmingham. I move in with my mom. I'm starting to work the road. And I submit to get on Comic View, and I don't get it. And I'm furious. And because I thought, oh, well, you know, surely you should want me. I'm black. You need a lot of black comedians. Like, they were... You know, at six comics a week at that clip, you're doing 24. Like, at, the Comic View was booking around 150 to 200 comedians per season. So it's a lot of slots to fill. So I'm like, I'm not in the top 200? Okay. I got work to do. And to be fair, I sucked at the time. I'm just telling you what my thought process was. And so I did a lot of black rooms, but I knew inherently I wasn't a black comedian. I'm a comedian that's black, but I didn't do 
a lot of material that was on par with what I believe Comic View wanted. So the second year, this is in 2002, the second year that I was, and Comic View had been on for years, but this is when I really started analyzing. I go, okay, I didn't get Comic View this year. Let's find out what type of comedians they're looking for so we can see exactly what they're looking for. So I started watching Comic View, and every night I made a list of every topic that was touched on that episode and just put a check mark beside the topic. And over the course of one year of watching Comic View, I had a three-page list of every single topic that had ever been discussed on the show. And it's sex, it's poverty, it's mama so ugly, it's, it's ugly people, it's bad breath, it's... And I'm not demeaning any of the comedians that did that stuff, but I had unequivocally data that showed these are the topics that the top 200 black comedians are talking about in the country. I'm not going to talk about any of that shit. That way, at minimum, I'm different. So you have to watch the tape. You have to respect me for being different. So if I can go to black rooms for the next year and get them to laugh at stuff that's not on this list, you got to fucking book me. You got to book me just for the novelty of having a black kid on that's not talking about, man, big girls keep you warm in the winter. Don't you look like all of that? It's like, no. And one of the jokes that I did was about suicide. And it wasn't a lot of black people telling that it wasn't on the list. So fuck it. That's the joke I'm opening up with. And that ended up getting me not only on Comic View, but it got me on Letterman. The same joke. And so that for me in terms of just studying stand-up for what was getting people booked, that was the origin of it. And then after that, I would just watch as much as I could to see who was telling jokes about what so that I wouldn't step on those angles or you know come in, come in on a topic that someone else had already kind of tread on and then get accused of stealing the joke or stealing you know, their style or whatever. And what, thank you for this, I mean, this is an incredibly comprehensive, like an exploded diagram of your process. I love how analytical you are about it. I love the idea of make, you know, getting actual data on, the, on you know, what topics there are and all the rest of it. What, what angles, and I should say as well, if you're happy to take some questions from the audience, yeah, we can yeah. do that shortly. We're sort of flying through the available time here. Before we get on to that, um, what elements of comedy do you feel that your own skill set is lacking? What sorts of things do you, do you think, if I could just crack that element of it, I could, I could have a, like a broader scope or I could say more of the stuff that I wanted to? I believe sometimes if I had more physicality and if I had impressions, being able to do impressions is an invaluable weapon. Like I watch Jay Farrow and I'm just, I love him, but I get jealous. Yeah, okay. Like he's one of those comedians that I can't watch because it's just, I, I don't laugh. I just get angry. Like I'm just, <laughs> I just see him do the joke and then he'll flip into Barack Obama mid joke and then he's doing a joke as Obama doing stand up. It's just, it, there's so many layers to it. You go back and listen to a lot of the old Eddie Murphy stuff as well and that stuff. It's just still, it still stands up, you know, most of it. I mean, a little more. <laughs> A little more PC now. Some of the Eddie Murphy <laughs> shit you can't play. But, but it's, it's all amazing 
material, but I just know I'll never be an impressions guy. I try to do accents. Every accent I do starts out as that nationality. <laughs> and then four words into it, it just sounds like this. And I sound like no other country this is that you think this country is that. I th- is, is that accent. your British accent? You're I don't talking know. About? <laughs> I thought it was Nigerian. I thought right now it's very Nigerian. Is that Latino? Sometime I am Latino. To be Latino, I just slow it down. I will slow it down. And then in my head, I think I am talking Latino. There's Latinos in the room furious right now. Like, that is not how... Yeah, I just I wish I could I wish I could be more of that, but you know, I'm I'm very happy with with where I am. I, I just I do think that there's a certain charisma that some comedians have when they walk on. Like if I'm trying to pull from other comedians' buckets, um Kevin Hart and Bill Bellamy. Bill Bellamy just has his way of just coming on stage and it's just like a suave fucking uncle that's just like, what's going on? How y'all doing? <laughs> like, like this, they're comedians that come on stage with a warmth where you, where you know everything's going to be all right. And I feel like I come on stage with the persona of, oh shit, something's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to tell us. Like, I feel like the crazy guy in the movie. Like, I'm here to warn you. Yeah. They're killing you with the peanuts. I'm telling you. Like, that's who I become. That's, that's interesting seeing that in the context of something you said at the very beginning of, uh, of this conversation when you, you said that you felt like a responsibility to, to touch on the topics that, that you... to talk about the topics you talk about. Like, you'd almost like to be able to talk about dumber stuff without yeah. feeling that sense of responsibility. If you look across late night television, I challenge you to name more than five black people with a voice. So, with that statistic in mind, I can't not talk about it. Robin Thede, they took off the air, they fired Larry Wilmore. So that leaves me, Dulce Sloan, Trevor, Amber Ruffin over on Seth Myers. Ashley Nicole Black was getting some play over at Samantha B, but she just left to take a writing job out in L.A. And I'm sure she's going to create a lot of dope content. But I'm talking about specifically in the world of what we do and what our competitors do. And you look at that crew and that staff, it's not a lot of black people. So if you're a black person with a camera and a microphone, it would be cool if every now and then you checked in on what's going on in the hood and point a light on that. You know, you can still go do a fun story, but every now and then go to Compton and ride a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Even though you're afraid of horses. So that was Roy. Loads more from Roy. Uh, I took some, I got some, <laughs> basically, I was after some questions in advance from Ronnie Cheng, because I know Ronnie, and uh, he gave me a, a sort of machine gun, <laughs> 20 or 30 Facebook messages, which amounted to a character assassination of Roy. So I, I put lots of those questions to him uh, in the extras, uh, including also some more of his, uh, some more on his methodology and uh, some very funny stuff about peanut allergies. That is all available exclusively to members of the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders where you can find all the other bump and gubbins that makes up that private podcast 
uh, and all the other extras from all the other shows. So that's that. Thank you, Roy. Thank you once again to Charlie Sotelo. Thanks to Danny Sweet and everyone at the uh, hideout uh, and also to the Austin, Texas Massive. Uh, thank you, ladies, for coming along as you did. Um, and uh, I also, God, I don't know if I'm allowed to release it. OK, we'll start post ambling about South by in a moment. For now, that's everything. Thank you to Nathan Wood, Rob Smout and Pete Dobbing and uh, Jake Crossland. Thank you for your various assistances in putting this together. And I look forward to bringing you next week, I think, Sindhu V. Then maybe we'll have another, maybe we'll have Eugene Merman from South By. Then Chris Addison uh, and then Matt Bronger and whoever else we've done in the meantime. Remember, you can get tickets for Josh Widdicombe live at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival. We've already sold 70 of them. That will sell out. Get on it quick. Um, and uh, and my tour stuff is uh, continuing to happen in a very exciting way. Thank you to everyone who has been in touch regarding the resilience presentations that I've been doing. I have been trying to wield my the, the sort of research that I've ended up doing accidentally as part of my quest to find out how people write their jokes. 300-odd episodes later, I am uh, sort of... I've got a lot of information now on how everyone survives a creative life and bounces back from adversity, and it is now... Uh, a thing that you can you can get. <laughs> I've done a few of them. I've got uh, three more in the diary, and it's sort of shape shifting as we go. This isn't me officially launching it, but if you are one of those people who uh, is excited about the idea, if you're in a position of power within a business, if you've got enough power to book me or to forward me to the relevant people, I can come and talk to your business for about 90 minutes about tenacity, resilience and bouncing back from adversity and what the greatest comics in the world can teach your business about those things. So if you'd like to get in touch, info at comedianscomedian.com and let's talk about it. I've done some of these now and they're good. Um... More, this is this is a, this is a soft launch. It's not a hard launch. It's not. I haven't got any marketing materials beyond a very simple one-page PDF at the moment. But um, but it tangibly works and is exciting. And the people who've seen it so far have been as buzzing about it afterwards as I have been. So so there we go. A soft launch, perhaps. Info at comedianscomedian.com if you'd like to get in touch. Uh, about that. Please don't get in touch and suggest places I should go and people I should talk to. This is at the moment, this is just for you if you are someone who actually has the power to make that happen and to say, oh, great, I'll book you for this um, because I'm, I'm getting lots of inquiries and it's uh, it's easier for me to sift through them if uh, just the people who hold the purse strings get in touch for now. If that is that fair? I think that's fair. Right, that's everything. I'll post Amble at you shortly, but for now, that concludes the podcast. Speak to you soon. Wow, man, I, I, you know, time goes by so quickly. South by Southwest was two weeks ago now, and I had a phenomenal time. I should have recorded on the way home. I should have recorded the incredible bubbling over enthusiasm that I felt as a result of that brilliant festival. And uh, I didn't do that. I shall try and stir it up in me now and, and relate it to you. Um, but of course, there's a little baby crying upstairs and uh, I've got relatives coming over and I've got loads of shit to sort out. So in brief, man, it was good. Motor scooters, right? So this is a thing I thought that was just for the festival, but apparently they're taking over various cities in America. Companies like Uber and Lyft and other ones I've not heard of, like Lime and Bird and something else. Um, are just leaving hundreds of motorised scooters, scooters like a child would use, but bigger and with a big old battery motor that's capable of doing, I don't know what, 25k? Um, uh, 
pH. I get, I'm talking speed. And uh, you just get on them and you find one and you, you get the app. And if you've already got Uber or whatever app you've got, it already that's already on there. Press the scooter button, click a snap a picture of a QR code. And suddenly you just get a scooter and you can razz around on it with no helmet. And uh, hundreds and hundreds of people were doing that. It took me about three days to recognise that uh, 3rd Street and 5th Street had really safe, big, wide bus lanes on them. So eventually, once I knew that, it became a game of quickly get me to 3rd or 5th and I can whip across the city without uh, risking life and limb. Um, That was so much fun. And on the Sunday morning, I got up with jet lag. God, jet lag was murder. And I was only there for four days. So by the time I recovered, I had to go home. But the Sunday morning I got up at seven and it was just empty, no traffic, no nothing. And I razzed around for about an hour and 15, having the time of my life. So that was very exciting. If you're not familiar with it, South by Southwest is sort of a, I mean, it's mostly a tech festival slash conference slash convention with a a huge convention centre in Austin and then numerous large hotels full of kind of separate, you know, rooms of different sizes. There's an incredible amount of stuff going on. Tech the whole time. There's a gaming element, a movie element, a comedy element and a film element, all of which take place and kind of some of them blend into others as they go. And um, it, you just feel like you're walking around the future. There's a trade floor where I met some guys. What are they? Were they called Draw Code? Some lovely British guys who were working with an augment, they created an augmented reality thing whereby you put on a headset and then you can. Oh, I mean, <laughs> what is there? Is there anything more pointless than someone trying to audio describe augmented reality to you? Basically, if you know what augmented reality is, it's like an incredibly good one of them where you can chuck little dinosaurs and dominoes around the place and they react to, you sort of map the actual environment, chairs and tables and stuff where you're actually standing and then they react to those things. You can put them on tables and they'll fall off when they get to the edge. Absolutely mind-blowing. And so somewhere out there, there's some very funny video footage of me just staggering around this convention centre with my tongue and my eyes popping out, just going, oh my God. It was so much fun. And... um I had really good fun hanging out there with my friend Steve Wilson and uh, also, who else, uh, Monica and Olivia. Great little shout out to those guys if they're listening. Really fun to hang out there. And I was just very well looked after. And uh, I did a roast battle against Dave Hill. I did my first roast, roast battle. I mean, I thought he was funnier, but then I did win. <laughs> and I've, I've, I've nicked the audio of that. I don't imagine I'm allowed to release it, but um, I, I might check if it's all right with Dave and then whack it on the, uh, the Insiders feed. Um, it, it, I had so much fun. And uh, it was really interesting being backstage with loads of American comics. I'm the only English guy there. Lots of them I know because they've been on the podcast. Jenna Friedman was there. Beth Stelling was there. And... Um, but it was interesting because I wasn't there in a comedy capacity. I was just podcasting. There was that funny thing in the dressing room whereby if you don't know my act, then you don't know whether to respect me. <laughs> Is that fair? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you're a comic and you've been or any kind of professional person, if you're in a a, a dressing room or equivalent relaxing environment and you um, someone says, oh, this is my friend. He's a podcaster and comic then you cannot help, of course I understand, you cannot help but think, oh, is he? I'll be the judge of that. Do you know what I mean? So um, it was really fun because then when I did the Kathy Griffin podcast, which was sort of, I mean, I'm really proud of that one. It was excellent. That came out uh, last week, if you fancy catching up with it. 
Um, very, very proud of that one. Afterwards, different vibe backstage because I think a few people were like, oh, you're that guy. <laughs> that was very satisfying. I think we've spoken on this podcast before about how frustrating it is when you're a new act and the famous act or the, you know, the big headliner acts in the green room, in any dressing room, uh, won't really, sometimes, some certain of them, won't give you the time of day and then you smash the gig and then afterwards they'll chat to you and you feel simultaneously like proud to have won their respect and annoyed that they treat a human being like that. Well, it was a little bit like that, but in a very nice way. Um, uh, I really had a lot of fun. I also hang out, so I hang out with Dave. Todd Barry was there as well. It was nice to hang out with Todd. And um, just, you know, I just ate brisket. I just ate an absolute ton of brisket and coleslaw that's somehow better than any coleslaw I've tasted. Razzed around on a motor scooter. Drank coffees. I was back to, oh, I tell you what, for coffee, if you want a flat white, it's back to the UK seven years ago. You've got it. Do you remember that bit of material I had in an hour about having to ask the server what a flat white was when you saw it in the menu in order to work out whether or not they know what it is? <laughs> and if they describe it wrong, you go, no, that's fine, thanks. I'll just have a latte, but with half as much milk. That'll do. So, um, I mean, I'm, there must be loads more to talk about. I got invited to a margarita brunch by Kathy Griffin on the last day. Um, which I thought would be sort of 40 people milling around. Turned out it was about 12 of us at a table. Uh, and uh, we were also accompanied by Rachel Ray, who is apparently super famous uh, American celebrity chef, I guess, or and also media mogul. I think she had her own network, let alone her own show. Um, so, uh, but that was one of those fun things of like meeting someone who is clearly everyone in the room is looking at them and you've got no idea who they are, so you can just meet them as a human. That was very satisfying. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's everything. That's everything I need to go into. It's just, I don't mean to gloat. I had a fantastic time. I was terrified on the way there, super stressed and anxious about the podcast and the roast battle. And as I always am far, just nervous, just nervous about interviewing people who I've researched and who I like and who I respect and who I'm looking forward to interview, but just can never seem to jettison that pointless anxiety and then I come out of that back into the thick of honing this, the resilience things, these, these presentations I'm doing. And, um, you know, I said honing, they, it exists and I'm, it will, I'll be honing it for 10 years. I'm sure I'll be sort of constantly sharpening it just like a show that you kind of keep in the bag. Um, but, uh, it's really funny. I had a chat yesterday with Ren and Dr. Barb, big shout out to those guys. Uh, they are kind of, I described them as being on the council of elders. I've composed, I've hand built a council of elders of people that I've kind of turned into mentors, um, via sort of initially, initially contacting via the podcast and then turning into mentors and friends. And I was chatting to two, two of the council, um, yesterday and just saying, yeah, I, I remember a few months ago, I put on Facebook something like, why do I just fill my life full of... Oh, why, why is my life so full of things I'm terrified of? <laughs> you know, why do I keep putting things in my diary that make me stressed and anxious? And I realise it's because, because I keep doing it. Because I just have got something in my head that it is somehow noble to constantly do things that terrify you. On the basis that if you, you know, stop... You're going to die one day, right? So you might as well spend your life in fear. Is this? I forget my point. I forget my point. But um, it was, I feel like every time I do a thing, like the, the podcast with Sindhu last week, you'll hear it next week, hopefully. It, it was brilliant. It was sensational. She's fabulous and funny. And it was a joy to talk to her. 
And I spent two weeks beforehand thinking, oh, God, I've got this podcast coming up. What's the point? And as soon as I tick one off, as soon as I get it done, then I'm into fearing the next thing. And then if I'm on holiday, I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm not doing enough things. <laughs> Come on. Every so often, I, what is it? What am I on, like an 18-month cycle where I will do a post that says, has anyone got any tips on how to solve anxiety in a lasting and meaningful way? Let's do another one of them. Feel free to get in touch at ComComPod on Instagram or, or Twitter, although I never check Instagram, sorry. Um, and indeed, email info at comedianscomedian.com if you have. What I need is the equivalent of the Stop Smoking book, Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking, which I read, Stop Smoking Overnight, getting on for 15 years ago. Absolutely. I mean, 10 to 15 years ago, something like that, whatever. It was phenomenal. I read it, it programmed me, I accepted the programming, and I immediately stopped smoking. I would like that, but for pointless anxiety. Send me your winning strategies, please. That'll do for now. Thanks again to everyone, to Charlie and everyone at South By. I, I had an incredible time. I've got two brilliant episodes left for you, and um, I will ask the relevant authorities and see if I can put the 10-minute section of me roast-battling Dave Hill very slowly. <laughs> 10 minutes is, I think, longer than they're supposed to last. Um, I'll see if I can put that on the insider's feed. All right, gang, speak to you soon. Bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.